Man, those are good hymns. How are y'all doing? Good. I brought a hibiscus LaCroix that I will be periodically sipping throughout the lesson. So if you see me sipping on this LaCroix, I have already warned you that I will be doing that periodically. Okay, uh, good evening, hello. My name is Connor Davey. Um, if I've never met you, I've been a member here, as Jeremy said, um, about four years. I graduated from the U of A about three years ago, um, and I sell cereal to Walmart for a living, um, which is very fun. So obviously, I'm qualified to answer that question, um, <laughs> because so often, I'm in a meeting with a buyer at Walmart, and they refuse to buy cereal until I can answer that question to them. And that's why I have so much experience answering this. Um, of course, that is a joke. I, uh, <laughs> I have no real credibility uh, answering this question. However, God does have credibility, uh, and he has answered this question in his word. Um, and that's where we're going to turn tonight. So just as a reminder, the question, the question I'm answering is, can Christianity answer the problem of evil? The answer is yes. So we can all pack up and head home. Thank you for coming. Man, I'm killing it tonight. Okay. Um, I, I don't have a PhD in philosophy. However, this, this uh, question comes up a lot in like Psych 101 settings. Um, I know this type of thing came up when I took Psych 101, so I've had to spend time thinking through this. I'm sure a lot of you have had to spend time thinking through this question. Um, I think a lot of folks who aren't, aren't Christians bring up the problem of evil and kind of think, checkmate, like we got them. Are they right? Should we be scared of this problem? Are we being willfully ignorant of the problem of evil? Christians, does this disprove our faith? Does this cast, cast doubt on the existence of God? Are you prepared to answer this question? One thing uh, I want to say before we get going, if you're an atheist or an agnostic or you're just unsure what you believe, I'm very genuinely thankful that you decided to come tonight. Uh, it is not easy to walk into an environment where you know you're going to fundamentally disagree um, with some of the things that are said. So I appreciate you taking the time to come here, especially in our day and age. We often won't even hear the other side. We just characterize and demonize. Um, so... That being said, if you're atheist or agnostic or just unsure where you stand, thank you for being here and listening to something that you might disagree with. Obviously, if you haven't found out, this is a Christian church, um, so I will be answering the question in the affirmative, yes, Christianity can answer the problem of evil. If you were sitting in a university lecture hall, depending on the professor, they might say, no, Christianity can't answer the problem of evil. So one thing I want everyone to do tonight is just weigh the evidence and decide, can Christianity answer the problem of evil? Does it have a good answer? So here's a quick glimpse into the structure of tonight. Right off the bat, I want to do some definition work up front, so we're all just kind of on the same page about what this problem of evil even says. Uh, if you have a bulletin, a lot of this structure is laid out on the, on the bulletin in front of you. So some definition work up front. Then I'm going to move into a section called The Problems with the Problem of Evil, which I thought was really clever. 
to try to make a case that the, these problems, uh, or excuse me, the problem of evil is actually more problematic for the secularist than it is for the Christian. Um, so that's the second main section. And then finally, I'm just going to answer the dang prompt, um, and I'm going to tell you if Christianity can answer the problem, what Christianity's answer is, uh, and use the Bible as my source to do so. So who is excited? Same, I'm pumped. Um, <laughs> if there's one thing I love most, it's reading definitions from Merriam-Webster's online dictionary. Unfortunately, they do not have a definition on the problem of evil, so I'm forced to turn now to another source, wikipedia.com. And I'm citing it. I can do what I want. This isn't college. Uh, my source is wikipedia.com, um, and I'm not ashamed of that. Basically, the problem of evil is dealing with how we reconcile the existence of God uh, with the existence of evil in the world. So the fact that we believe in an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient God, and there is evil in the world. So the problem of evil basically says, if God is omnipotent or all-powerful, if he's omnibenevolent or all-good, and he's omniscient, meaning he knows everything, there shouldn't be evil in the world. That's what it asserts. So the official fancy-sounding psychology definition is in your bulletin, P1, P2, and C1, which today I googled. What do those Ps mean? Premise. That's what it means. <laughs> Premise one. If an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and omniscient God exists, then evil does not. Premise two. There is evil in the world. Conclusion one, C1. Therefore, an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient God does not exist. Sounds pretty fancy laid out in that formula, garbags. This, you throw some scientific sounding logic on it, it's checkmate. Um, I'm kidding. Another philosopher, David Hume, also on your bulletin, summarizes the problem as such. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able, then he is not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing, then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing, then from whence comes evil. So remember that ending there. Hume is asking, if he's all-powerful and all-good, where does evil come from? Uh, we're going to come back to that and Mr. Hume later. So hopefully we're all kind of on the same page about the definition of the problem of evil. Does anybody have any questions about the definition before we move forward? Because I think right here we can all be on the same page, and then this is where we might start to go different routes depending on how you interpret the evidence. Any questions about the definition? Sweet. Awesome. Wikipedia.com. Um, okay, let's move into the problems with the problem of evil. Again, pat on my own back for that one. Um, I rewarded myself with a Reese's peanut butter cup when I uh, came up with that. Okay, here's why I think these problems present an equally challenging problem for secularists. The problem with the problem is in both premise one and premise two of the above formula on your, on your handout there. So there's a problem with both statements. The first statement, if an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and omniscient God exists, then evil does not. 
The first statement says that God would not allow evil. The problem here is that this is highly assumptive, very assumptive. In reality, you and I are not God, if you haven't figured that out. And so we don't know if he would allow evil. We don't know. Just because we wouldn't allow certain things doesn't mean that he wouldn't allow certain things. It's too assumptive uh, to say that he wouldn't do this. We're putting ourselves in the place of God if we say he wouldn't do that because we can't see things from his perspective at all. And if you know yourself, you know your perspective is very limited. A good God may very well allow evil if it has a good purpose. And we'll dig into, more, uh, dig into that more later. But for now, just recognize that if, if you say this first premise seriously, you're putting yourself in the place of God uh, by saying he wouldn't do this. The problem with the second statement The second statement says there is evil in the world. The problem here for a secularist is acknowledging that objective evil exists, which you may have never thought of this as a problem for a secularist, but we all kind of know that evil exists just instinctually, right? I don't, there's there's very few people who would hopefully argue with that. We can point to a ton of different examples. Serial killers exist. That's very evil. Pedophiles exist. School shooters exist. Racists exist. The Holocaust happened. Women and children are sold into sex trafficking. Greed runs rampant. The DC superhero films exist, (laughs) etc. The last one was a joke. We're all on the same page there. Um, Those are... (laughs) Those are extreme examples, but what I'm trying to do is is give examples of things that 99% of the population still agrees is just objectively evil. Um, Here's the problem with the problem. If you're a secularist, you're a little bit backed into a corner if you acknowledge that objective evil exists. So if there are things that are objectively wrong, regardless of culture, parenting, mental illness, societal pressures, etc., then something higher than humanity instituted that thing as wrong, instituted that thing as evil. So let's take a really horrific, extreme example. Shooting a newborn baby in the face. Is this objectively wrong? Any sane person in the world should say, yes, that is objectively wrong. It doesn't matter what culture you were born into. It doesn't matter how bad your parents were, your socioeconomic status, your mental illness, the societal pressures around you, if the baby looked at you the wrong way, it is wrong despite any condition you put on it. It's just wrong. And if that's true, someone higher than humanity declared it to be wrong. Something higher than culture exists because that's wrong in every culture, regardless of how the culture feels at every time in history, regardless of personal beliefs. If the person who did that said, well, you don't, you don't get it for me, This is morally okay to do. We would say, no, it's not. It doesn't matter how you were raised or what you believe. What you did is wrong. If that's true, if objective morals exist, then a higher power had to have instituted them. And we can argue about who that higher power is, about if he or she is good or evil, but you're pretty much forced to acknowledge that a higher power exists if you acknowledge that evil objectively exists which leads to an even bigger question. If you're a secularist or a naturalist, what makes something evil? Christians have a very easy answer to this. We look to God's word and say, 
this is evil and this is good because he has told us so. Secularists or naturalists don't really have anywhere to turn. So it seems like nowadays mainstream psychology is um, kind of arguing that anything that causes harm to another person, that's how we would define evil, anything that causes harm. Unfortunately, that itself is a very fragile moral guide and raises even more questions. What is harm? Uh, can I harm someone even if my actions don't directly affect them? Can someone think they're being harmed even if they're not being harmed? Uh, can harm ever be a good thing? Is there ever a greater purpose that might justify harm? So my only point in saying all this is to get you to think if you're, if you're unsure of what you believe tonight, maybe I don't have this all figured out and maybe make you a little bit more willing to hear the Bible's response to this problem. I also bring this up um, just to equip Christians in the room. Uh, you know, this, this question comes up often. Um, so just recognize that even before we turn to God's word, which you should turn to God's word in answering this question, you can point out just some like little flaws in logic in how the problem is phrased. Um, so now let's, let's turn to God's response, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of the time, and that's that, I think, third point on your bulletin, God's response uh, to the problem of evil. So I wanted to start out um, with a Bible verse that just explicitly condemns evil um, and that separates God from evil. Uh, there's a hundred different examples I could have turned to, but I put Psalm 5, verse 4 on your handout. So I'm going to read Psalm 5, verse 4 for you real quick. It says this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. God hates evil uh, to the point that he can't even live among it. He can't even be present with it. That's why in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of his presence is because he can't even dwell with evil. He doesn't delight in wickedness. He hates it. Uh, again, there's a hundred different verses you can turn to in scripture to prove that out, but this one stood out to me. If you remember David Hume from earlier, he asked, from whence comes evil? From whence comes evil? Where does it come from? If God is able and willing to stop evil, where does it come from? And why doesn't he stop it? Is he evil for not stopping it? Does he even dislike evil? So the Bible has a simple answer to why evil exists in our world. It's, uh, it's very simple. It comes from us, and it comes from Satan. Those are the two places. We just have to turn to, like you did last week, Genesis 3 to see this. God is not the cause of evil. If you turn to Genesis 3, God is not the cause of evil. He's not the author of evil, but he is the author of humanity, who's made in his image. The world he created was good. Mankind was made in his image to choose good or evil, and we chose evil. So what we did was we twisted the good gifts he'd given us in on themselves, and evil came about through that. Um... And that's what sin is. That's what sin is. It's a twisting of good into evil. All sin starts with something good, and then it bends it into something bad. This is how God isn't the cause of evil. He created everything good, and then we twisted good into evil. God didn't cause evil. And by the way, we keep doing this today. We twist good gifts out of their proper context to serve ourselves instead of serving God. And we sin, and we keep doing evil. I think one of the easiest examples to look at here is sex. 
So sex is a, is a good gift given by a great God, but it's so obvious in the culture that we have just twisted this 30 different ways to make it serve ourselves instead of him. So we take the gift, which is a good thing, and we say, I really like the pleasure part of that, but I don't like the covenant-keeping part of that, so I'm going to take what I like and get rid of what I don't, and we twist the gift in on itself. So pornography pops up, objectification of women happens, the Me Too movement ends up being necessary because we've just twisted this gift so much uh, into something sinful. So in short, we are the authors of much evil. We take good and we twist it and we make it evil. We, we choose evil all the time. And if you know yourself, the more you know yourself, the more you know you choose evil often. We are not the solution. We are the problem. So evil comes from us. But we still have the so-called problem of like, why does God allow it? Why does God allow evil? So let's assume for a second that God could stop all evil in the world right now. Which if you're a Christian, you believe that he can right now if he wanted to. God could stop your suffering, whatever you're going through, right now, if he wanted to. He could stop all sex trafficking right now. He could stop all murder, all cancer, all abuse right now. But he doesn't. He doesn't stop all of it right now. So is he still good? Is there any reason why a good God would allow evil to continue? I think one easy way to just start to think about this is through the lens of parenting. Uh, would a good parent ever let harm come to their kid or something bad happen to their kid? The answer is yes, in very limited circumstances for a good purpose. So one example, a vaccine. Let's forget about COVID for a second and talk about like the chicken pox vaccine, okay? Most people agree it's a good thing to get the chicken pox vaccine. I think you might have to have it to move into any kind of like shared living facility. Um, it's, listen, it's been around a while. It's pretty well tested. Uh, a good parent might allow their kid to suffer for half a second when the needle goes in. The kid has no idea what's going on. Um, but knowing that it's going to prevent a lot greater suffering and possibly even death in the future of the child from chickenpox. What will this brief harm teach the child? It's going to teach them they need to just trust their parents. They have no idea what's happening. Um, you may not understand everything, but your parents have bigger perspective than you. That's what it's teaching the child. You don't know everything, but this is going to help you. So people in authority, and parents are just one example, can allow something bad to happen in order for a greater good to come of it. There just has to be a good purpose. If evil is purposeless, if it doesn't have any purpose, then the God of the Bible doesn't exist. I'll just say that again. If evil is purposeless, the God of the Bible doesn't exist. Uh, this is cosmically larger on the scale of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God than a parent and a, and a vaccine and a kid. If he's going to allow evil, he must have a purpose, and that purpose must be good. And if you're a skeptic, you're probably thinking he better have a dang good purpose to allow all the evil in this world. The Bible has good news for you. He does have a good purpose for it. The glory of his name and the good of his church. So if you would turn to Romans 8.28, it's also on your 
bulletin or the references on your bulletin. Romans 8:28 says this, "And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose." Romans 8:28 doesn't discriminate between good things and bad things. All things work together for the good of those who love God. This is the highest purpose we could imagine. God allows sin because it eventually glorifies him and builds up his church. Friends, it's good to remember that our perspective is so limited. It's so limited. We're like the kid who doesn't understand the needle and the purpose for it. We see something evil and we can sometimes think, man, there's just no way any good could ever come of this, ever. But do we really have the authority or the sight to make a statement like that? with any real certainty. No, we don't. For example, it's, it's, like we're, it's like we're standing a half an inch from a 30-foot tall painting, and we just see like the bright red mark that's right in front of us, and we're like, this doesn't make any sense. There's no way this is art. I don't understand this. And God is like 400 feet back, and it's a 30-foot painting, and the red piece in the middle that you didn't understand and you thought was stupid is like the crux of the whole painting. It's what holds the whole painting together. There's just, we just don't have the perspective of God, uh, and we're kidding ourselves if we think we do. So if some of you know this, I don't think all of you know this. When I was 18, uh, my dad went to prison for a year, uh, which was rough. Um, I grew up in a very middle-class family in a nice suburb. Nobody that we knew, like, went to prison. It was not a thing that you do. Uh, but my dad did, and it was, it was really horrible. It was the darkest year of my life, uh, mentally brutal. I had just moved to college. I was a freshman at the U of A. I was like, I am abandoning my family right now. It was terrible. In the moment, I'm, I'm half an inch from the painting. I have no idea what's going on. I don't see any way that God could bring good of this. My perspective is too limited. But looking back now, and it's not like I have like the 30-foot view now, but I'm starting to piece together like what was the Lord using this um, to do in my life? So looking back, more prayer than I could have ever imagined up to that point in my life. More dependence uh, on God, knowing that I had to trust that he's the only one who can protect my dad and keep my family together. He's the only one. I can't do it. Um, more peace in God, knowing that he was in control and I was not. So a lot of sanctification came out of something pretty brutal and horrible. Evil happens for good. God uses evil for good purpose. One of the, the great Old Testament stories that illustrates this is the story of Joseph, um, which occupies a lot of the book of Genesis. So if you know the story, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was kind of being a jerk, but still. Sold into slavery by his brothers. Not very cool. Um, does that for a long time, ends up going to jail because he won't commit adultery. Not because he did commit adultery, but because he refuses to commit adultery. Goes to jail for a long time, is forgotten in jail, and eventually uh, gets out and builds up a, a like silo of food that they can have during this um, drought, drought? Famine, there it is. Drought is water. We're learning things. Um, 
saves up all his food during a famine, and his brothers come to him and actually get food from him. And they're terrified when they recognize it's him. And in Genesis 50, this, it's kind of the culmination of the Joseph story. Genesis 50, verse 20, which is on your, your handout there. And actually, I'm going to read verse 19 and 20. This is Joseph talking to his brothers who sold him into slavery. He says this, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's, I mean, that's the whole lesson in two verses. <laughs> as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. There are so many Christians who would testify that the Lord used the hardest times in their life to be some of the best times for them spiritually. When it looked like there was most evil, there was a lot of good for them and their faith, so much so that many of them wouldn't take it back, all the evil that they went through. God allows evil. There is no doubt about that. And if that's true, you better believe God is in the business of allowing that evil to have a good, glorious purpose. The most vivid example of evil being used for good occurs with the life and death of Jesus. Jesus came as a perfect man, a new Adam, but he's a little different uh, than us. There was no evil in him. He never twisted God's gift uh, in on itself to be used for evil. He was sinless. If anyone in the history of time didn't deserve evil to happen to them, it was Jesus Christ. And yet, the worst thing that could ever happen, happened to him. Innocent, yet convicted guilty, and condemned to death by being nailed to a cross. And as terrible as that sounds, and as terrible as the Passion movie makes that look, the physical pain had to be nothing compared to the spiritual pain that this man went through. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross for the sins of his people. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. It must have been so painful that it made the nails that went all the way through his hands feel like a paper cut in comparison to the wrath of God being poured out on his only son. And it gets even worse. So this is Jesus, God the Son, who has shared an eternal fellowship with the Father for all eternity past. He's always been in fellowship with the Father. The only relationship that has been holy and undefiled for all time, existing forever, broken at the cross. The Father had to break fellowship with his Son, and the Son was truly alone for the first time in all eternity. The worst thing happened to the best person. The wrath of God was poured out on the only one who didn't deserve it, Jesus. Again, the worst thing ever happened to the best person ever, and yet God used it for good. This church, and if you're a Christian, you are proof of that. God has used it for good. Jesus did not stay dead. He physically rose, conquering sin and death, and he now offers you the ability to be free from sin. He will take the punishment you deserve for your evil on himself and give you good eternally. He'll mold you into the image of his son and you'll become who you were meant to be from the beginning, less sinful, less about yourself, more Christ-like. All he asks is that you repent or turn away from your sins and trust in Christ and his finished sacrifice. 
And that's the gospel. Who would have thought that the answer to the problem of evil would be the gospel? And yet it is. The cross of Christ is the answer to the question of the problem of evil. So if this is brought up to you, this problem of evil, it's a great way to share your faith. The gospel is a great way to answer this question and share your faith. An all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God allowed the most evil thing in the world to happen to the most innocent person in the world for a gloriously good purpose, the redemption of his people and the glory of his name. I'm going to say that again because that felt good. An all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God allowed the most evil thing in the world to happen to the most innocent person in the world for a gloriously good purpose, the redemption of his people and the glory of his name. So the cross is two things. It's both, one, the pinnacle of God using mankind's evil for a higher purpose. It's the pinnacle of him using our evil for a better purpose. What better purpose could there be? It's that. And it's two, the proof that he will use all things for good. All things for good. If he can use the death of his own perfect son for good, he can use whatever you're going through for good. There's no doubt he can use whatever you're going through for good. There's no doubt that he can use murder for good, sex trafficking for good, the Holocaust for good. He can, and he does, and he will continue to do so. But friends, the answer gets even better than that for the Christian. Christianity doesn't stop there. God doesn't just put a Band-Aid on an open wound and say, like, cheer up, it'll get better with time. The pain isn't just going to go away. Because of the resurrection of Christ, the pain is going to be reversed. Revelation 21, which I think you may have looked at last week as well, um, kind of the culmination of the entire Bible. Revelation 21, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. This is the, the end of the biblical storyline, essentially. Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The image in the last days isn't humans being taken out of a sick and dying world to a heaven that's perfect. Rather, it's actually heaven coming down and cleansing, fixing, and restoring the evil world. So Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, The Reason for God, which you should all read if you haven't read it. It's wonderful. He says this, The biblical view of things is resurrection, not a future that is just consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life we always wanted. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, The Great Divorce. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Or, as we sing in a song that we just sang, Christ the sure and steady anchor, which I did not know we were singing tonight, and I put it in here, right here. Christ the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, 
clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. The calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Somehow, the storms that you're going through will make the peace and the calm even sweeter when you reach the shore. If God can use the death of his son to accomplish his good purposes, there is no doubt he can and does use all evil and all suffering for his purposes. Christians have a great and glorious answer to the problem of evil because we serve a great and glorious God who uses even our evil for his glory and our good. I'm going to say that one more time. Christians have a great and glorious answer to the problem of evil because we serve a great and glorious God who uses even our evil for his glory and our good. This God is worthy of all of your trust and allegiance. Do you trust him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. Lord, thank you for who you are. Who else is like you who can use even our evil and our sinfulness for good? Lord, even when we sin, you use that to sanctify us. Lord, how amazing is that? We pray that we'd marvel at that. We pray that we'd thank you every day that you are so powerful that you can even use evil for good. And we pray that we would be quick to tell our friends about the great hope we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.